great honor to be here. It's an honor that so many people came to this lecture. I'm quite uh, impressed and impressed. Uh, I hope that uh, it's up to your expectations. Uh, the title of the lecture is Beauty and the Beast, Humanity, Animality, and Animism in the Thought of an Amazonian People. I knew that part by heart, but I think I'd better put my glasses on. <laughs> As an aging anthropologist, I found out that one of the more congenial ideas of the Bengalkrikayapu, the indigenous people with whom I've been doing research since the 1960s, is that as people grow older, they tend to become more beautiful. The Kayapu term translated here as beauty, mate, with its derivatives, mekumren, truly beautiful, and metire, beautiful in the sense of pretty or attractive, is a general term which in various forms and contexts denotes perfection, completeness, and harmony of one's personal character and social relations, proper and well-turned-out bodily environment, goodness in an ethical sense, and expressiveness and finesse in such value modes of public performance as oratory, singing, and dancing. These valued cultural activities, taken together, constitute the highest, most accomplished, or in a word, most beautiful forms of social identity, a cultural ideal of humanity, which is attained only by some humans. Ideally among them, senior men and women, active in ceremonial performance, leaders in the men's house and senior at women's age sets, and many by now heads of their households. Another major category, however, consists of those who as children receive beautiful names in communal ceremonies. Human identity in these ideal forms is to be distinguished from that of less beautiful, more common people, common uh, in a somewhat disparaging sense. The word is, the Kaiba word is kakrit, <coughs> as well as animals and other non-human entities who, who do not, they may be beautiful in their own terms, but they don't attain beautiful by, and beauty by human standards. The ideal of beauty as a social value is thus bound up with ideas about the common standards or values of humans and animals or humanity and animality as existential conditions. This implies that humans and animals are not entirely different kinds of beings. On the contrary, the Kayapo consider humans and animals, and to varying degrees, other non-human beings, uh, to share fundamental aspects of existence, such as processes of growth, the attainment of standardized forms of appearance, which animals do too, and elementary family life. And this implies that the distinction between humanity and animality is not conceived in Kaipo culture simply as an external difference between humans and animal species, but also as an internal division within humanity, within human beings, uh, between specifically human traits and features shared with other species. Humans share aspects of animality but humans alone share certain unique features that set humanity apart from animals. Many of these distinctive features themselves, however, comprise developments or elaborations of prototypes originally shared by the ancestors of contemporary animal and human beings. 
the distinction between anima animality and humanity in some is complex and as much an internal relation between levels of human being as an external relation between human and animal species. Nor, nor is it, as an internal com component of specifically human existence, a fixed and stable boundary. Rather, it is a fluctuating and variable process of transformation of basic animal powers into human cultural forms, a process, however, that can run in either direction. In this process, animality functions as the boundary condition of humanity. The human neonate is little differentiated from animals and subject to dangerous animal influences. On the other hand, dead humans, reduced to phantom-like spirits separated from their decaying bodies, are addressed in keening for the dead as having become animals. In the Kayapo perspective, we begin and end as animals. The development and ultimate dissolution of human personhood is grounded in and interdependent with the transformations of human bodiliness, which involve the animal basis of human existence as much as the achievements of socialization and enculturation. The social development of the person is treated in Kayapo ritual and social practice as a series of transformations of internal bodily energies and faculties, which up to a point are shared by humans and animals and to varying degrees by other animate and inanimate entities, including the cosmos itself, which, like the human body and personal identity, is also conceived as a system of cyclical transformations that renew its constant form, even as they continually change it. The transformation of these essentially animal features into social forms of human bodiliness is achieved through social relations in the family and extended family and through membership in communal groups like the men's and women's age sets, which are recruited through public rites of passage. The animal aspects of human existence <coughs> are not limited to the body. The elementary family, the locus of physical reproduction and primary socialization, is itself considered to consist of relatively animal-like pre-cultural relations, properly social relations, are conceived as beginning at the boundary of the elementary family unit and consist of purely interfamily relationships, purely social relationships that lack any direct biological component. Thus, grandparents, maternal uncles, and paternal aunts are considered to be the appropriate transmitters of social identity in the form of names and ritual valuables to a child, in contrast to the child's father, mother, or siblings who either transmit or share a biological uh, animal being, who are excluded from performing these functions of social transmission. And while the Kayapo thus conceive human beings and the elementary family to share some traits with animals and certain other non-human entities, however, they do not represent humans and animals as essentially identical in either subjective or objective terms. Human culture and social relations are conceived as different in critical respects from their animal counterparts and prototypes, despite the extent to which humans may share or may once have shared them. The differences as re represented in myths, ritual practices, and various attributes of social identity amount to a distinctive Kayapo conception of the essence of humanity. An important aspect of this conception is the manner and degree to which humans 
may aspire to and achieve beauty as a social and cultural value. The essence of human uniqueness is represented as the human capacity <coughs> to apply basic transformative processes to themselves, thus transforming, that is, to the, to the transformative processes themselves, thus transforming, replicating, and varying the forms of things, including the Kayapo themselves as social persons and their own social relations. As I developed my ethnographic understanding of the Kayapo ideal of beauty in successive amounts of fieldwork, however, I became aware of a troubling ambivalence pervading Kayapo attitudes toward the notion of beauty as a social ideal, a sense of inherent instability, and in certain contexts, such as trance behavior, a susceptibility to dizzying collapses into its anti-social opposite. This sense, I realized, is bound up with the Kayapo notion that the construction of their social identities through transformations of bodiliness, that is, of their own internal animality, may render them vulnerable to relapses into the animality that continues to lurk beneath the veneers of their sociality. The most insidious Kayapo idea along this line is that this danger may be increased rather than diminished the greater the distance from the animal substratum of bodiliness that may have been achieved by its transformation into cultural forms. The social production of beauty, in so many words, gives rise in certain contexts and under certain condition, <coughs> conditions excuse me, to an intimation of a fearful symmetry of beauty and bestiality. The most beautiful people may, in this view, be the most vulnerable to a tendency for human social refinement to collapse into its opposite. Fits of antisocial aggressiveness and a total loss of cultural consciousness, even language, more appropriate to beasts of prey than to social humans. Insights from extreme ethnography. My first ethnographic animation of this problem came to me early in my fieldwork in a sudden and frightening form. In late 1965, I presented my doctoral thesis based on a year and a half of fieldwork among the Kayapo and immediately returned to Brazil to begin a second bout of fieldwork with a different Kayapo group than the two I had previously studied. This was the Mentutire Kayapo community of Porori, located on the bank of the Xingu River. After I had been a couple of months in Porori, an epidemic of flu broke out and six people out of the village population of 168 died. My wife had returned to Rio, and I was the only person capable of dispensing a semblance of Western medical care, which in that context meant essentially aspirin pills and heavy doses of bedside manner. I soon found myself spending most of my waking hours trying to help the many sick and terrified Indians doing rudimentary nursing and even helping to bury a few of those who died, whose own kin were too sick to help with the job. One afternoon, I spent several hours with a very sick widow who lived by herself in a house built some distance from the village. I returned to the circle of houses when the sun was low in the sky, casting long shadows on the cleared ground of the central plaza. It was oddly quiet. None of the usual noises of household conversations playing children, or women chopping wood for cooking fires, 
I caught sight of one person, a senior man I knew. Standing in the center of, his, of the plaza with his back to me. He seemed to be holding a shotgun, broken open in the loading position, the barrel and wooden stock protruding at different angles on each side of his body. My hut lay on the opposite side of the plaza, so my way led directly past Krantaich, as I shall call him. As I passed him, I clapped him on the shoulder and hailed him cheerfully. Oh, Krantaich, what are you up to? Several things then happened in rapid succession. Kantoich, who had not seen me coming, jerked his body around and turned his face to me. With a shock, I saw that his eyes were turned up into his head so that only the whites were showing. He was trembling with intense muscle tension, was streaming with sweat, and was extremely hot to the touch, as I had just clapped him on his shoulder. As I registered these disconcerting facts, Kantoich succeeded in pushing a cartridge into the firing chamber of the gun and closed the barrel with a loud click. He spoke not a word and seemed to be in a trance. With a start of fear, I realized <coughs> that he had entered the crazed antisocial trance state the Kayapo call I blind. And that the reason the village was so quiet <coughs> was that all the inhabitants had fled to the forest to get away from him. I was alone with a crazed person who was holding a loaded shotgun with trembling hands. I said, Kan Toich, give me the gun, and seized the barrel. In his trance, however, Kan Toich seemed unable either to understand or to speak, or at least was unwilling to do so. He was trembling violently, and his tautly stretched muscles were as hard and strong as steel. I could not wrench the gun, the gun from his hands, but I was able to cover the trigger guard with one hand and keep him from getting it away from me so he could point it and pull the trigger. I dared not let go, thinking that if I turned to run, I would likely get a load of buckshot in my back. As we struggled, each of us with all of our strength, but neither able to get control of the shotgun from the other, I had a mad vision of the painting by Rousseau, the Duanier Rousseau, of a tropical forest scene of gigantic plants standing motionless in golden sunlight. One feels in a stillness as total as that in which we were grappling. In the lower right-hand corner of the picture is the diminutive figure of a man <clears throat> in a death struggle with a panther or jaguar, which, however, leaves the indifferent calm of the forest <clears throat> undisturbed. Fortunately, the silent village proved not to be as serenely empty and unconcerned with human difficulties as Rousseau's jungle. From one of the houses, ringing the plaza, suddenly burst three men, the old chief, Cremoro, another senior man, and a young man of the bachelor's age set. They had been hiding in the hut and watching for a chance to rush Kantaj and take away his gun. I had unexpectedly given them their chance. They ran out and tackled Kantaj, and the four of us finally succeeded in wresting the gun from his grasp. We extracted the cartridge from the chamber and ran with the gun back to the hiding place in the hut where the men had been lurking. Kran Toich, meanwhile, staggered awkwardly in the opposite direction until he reached the house. <coughs> he entered it and seized a number of pieces of wood that were burning on a hearth. He returned with them to his former place in the middle of the closet 
and began throwing them, apparently at random and without aiming, in the general direction of the thatched houses on the periphery of the cluster. He did not hit any houses or succeeded in setting any of them on fire. Uh, our little group stood ready to try to put out any fires he might start, but there was no room to restrain him or forcibly prevent more of his crazy behavior, so long as it did no harm. As we watched from our hiding place, I noticed that the young man standing beside me, the one from the bachelor's uh, aid set, had begun to tremble over his whole body, startled and fearing that he too might be slipping into a berserk trance like that of Kung Taichi. I cried out, oh no, not you too. Is everybody going crazy around you? <laughs> he indignantly replied, what? Am I a beautiful person? Am I a mage person that I should go eyebind and run wild, a cray, like an animal? Not me. I'm just a common kaki guy. My young companion turned out merely to be shivering from fright after his encounter with Kantoich and the onset of the evening chill. Kantoich, when he ran out of things to throw, began to show signs of exhaustion. He hung his head, became inactive, and finally collapsed to the ground in a coma. <coughs> Seeing this, Cremoro, the old chief, shouted from our hiding place for people to come out of the woods, that it was safe now that Kantoich's trance seemed to be ending. The first to arrive, he sent with buckets or pans to the river to bring water to pour on the prostrate uh, Krantoich, who was apparently unconscious, but still hot to the touch. Soon he was lying in the middle of a large mud puddle, which effectively cooled him down to normal temperature. He thereupon regained consciousness, though he seemed to be dazed and had no memory of his lapse into trance. He was not held responsible for his threatening behavior, uh, which was accepted as conduct to be expected from Ivan trances. From my exchange with my trembling companion, I learned some invaluable lessons about Kayapo ideas of humanity, animality, beauty, and the causes of psychic breakdowns into social trances. Not all of them turned out to be true. I had thought of the Kayapo value of meshness, which I've translated as beauty, as the epitome of sociality, and as such, the opposite of concreteness, vulgar commonality. I now realize that common sociality was not even on the same scale as Ivan Trent's. The appropriate contrast was rather between humanity and the Kayapo sense of social form, sociality, and animality, again in the Kayapo sense of the animal substratum of human bodiliness. In Ivan Trent's, I learned uh, the socialized part of human subjective identity becomes eclipsed, leaving only the unsocialized, unenculturated part. Those undergoing Ivan trance lose all or virtually all of their cultural skills, including language and basic motor skills, and ultimately lapse into unconsciousness, uh, a coma, in fact, from which uh, it is said that they may never recover. The state has much in common with shamanic trance, except that for Kayapo shamans, the coma comes first and gives way to the trance in which the shaman voluntarily changes his form, assumes the form of the first creature he sees, usually a flying creature, like a moth, bat, or bird, and he flies off in this form uh, to seek uh, 
well, uh, advice and counsel from other shamans, the kind of say. He may go on to assume other non-human forms, but he must always remain conscious of his humanity and never lose himself completely in the non-human form he has taken on. If he does make the fatal mistake, a mistake of accepting his adopted form as his real identity, he loses contact with his own body, with the result that both his spirit and his body die separately. Life, in other words, consists of a constant interaction and interdependence between spirit and body. Ivan trance, like shamanic trance, involves the separation of the spiritual form of a person, which the Kayapo call <coughs> karon. Karon is a term which means shadow, uh, spirit, um, image. A picture, a photograph is called a karon. But that doesn't mean that Kayapo think that taking their picture seals their karons out of their, their souls out of their body. Uh, the karon, for our purposes here, is the socialized and enculturated subjectivity attached to the physical form. It has uh, the image. It, has, it is an image. It has the form of the body. But it is not the body. It is the guiding spirit that animates the body. Uh, in most cases, the separation of spirit and body, as in shamanic trance, uh, or in fact, in the milder forms of uh, Ivan trance, is incomplete, as in sleep or coma. But in particular, uh, particularly intense or violent cases, the connection between the body and its loosely attached spirit form may be lost, resulting inevitably in the death of the person, shaman or transit, as it may be. The loosening of the relation of karon spirit form to body content regularly accompanies processes of transformation from one identity to another, uh, as in initiation rituals affecting passages from adolescence to adulthood or the ultimate initiation, as Robert Harris called it, of death. In such passages, the previously existing physical and social identity of a person is suppressed or separated, following which the initiate is brought into contact with transformative powers and processes that have the power to disrupt or disintegrate ordinary social identities and form new and different ones. Such transformative powers are the essence of the sacred, as conceived by Robinson Smith, as consisting of things needing to be kept apart from ordinary profane or secular social life. Kayapo male initians, for example, are obliged to live in camps in the forest apart from the village. Their spirits are thought to be so loosely attached to their bodies that loud noises might cause them to fly away, causing the boys to die. On the other hand, the boys take on the character of violent monsters who might rape or kill any woman who stumbles upon their camp. The initians, in short, have some of the properties of Ivan trances. Neither initians, if they abuse someone who has come too near their seclusion camp, nor Ivan trances, are held morally accountable for their deeds, since they are not regarded as having been themselves when they did it. Kranteutsch, after his cooling off in the puddle, claimed he had no memory of what had happened, was taken at his word, and was treated indulgently like a drunk with a bad hangover. 
all of which is to say that Ivan trends, like the transformative processes and inversions in the medial phases of social rites of passage, is about power. Power to escape from and transform the identities, relations, and mores of ordinary social life, what Durkheim called the profane sphere of existence. Persons who become Ivan are thought to be somehow in touch with such power and thus to have become suspended above ordinary social life and relations. Unlike initiates, however, they lack the formal constraints and social safeguards that insulate and protect society from direct contact with these powers and their social dangers. With their normal social identities and morals stripped away, Ivan dancers tend to oscillate between polar extremes of transcendental exaltation beyond the range of secular social existence and the infrasocial <coughs> animality, in effect bestiality, that is all that remains of their normal subjective identities. I think that this helps to understand why some persons who yearn for more power and importance than is their lot in normal social life, yearnings that cannot be satisfied by conventional tokens of status or beauty, like Kayapo names or values, I'm speaking here of Kayapo persons, such persons may develop a vocation for going on. At the very least, it is an infallible way of commanding attention, concern, and fear from others. Um, the performance of outrageous or threatening acts by persons ostensibly in Ivan trance is normally not held against them as it would be if done by a normal person because the pattern of antisocial behavior by persons in transcendental or liminal states in social rites of passage, for example, is well established in the culture and serves as a frame for uh, the social consciousness of the deeds of uh, transits, I found transits. It seemed to me that Kran Teutsch was such a person. Um, he was known for past episodes of trance behavior in which he would stand in the plaza and declaim nonsensical phrases, afterwards lapsing into unconsciousness. People regarded him as a relatively wild and potentially dangerous character. <laughs> Instances of Ivan Trance behavior helped to bring into focus the importance of Kayapo notions of the spirit and the body as distinct but interdependent factors of human bodiliness and social personhood. The concept of the interdependence and dialectical relation between these two aspects of human being is fundamental to Kayapo ideas about the shared nature of animals, humans, and other beings. Taken together, they amount to a Kayapo form of animism. This set of ideas is explained by the cluster of meanings of the Kayapo term Kayapo, which I've used, uh, and its uses to mean image, form, shadow, and spirit, soul, or ghost uh, of a person or other entity. Not only humans have Kayapos. Although humans are thought of as the spirit Kayapos, possessing beings par excellence, uh, mammals, birds, fish, and many trees, vines, and other plants, and even some entities, like the sun and moon, which might be defined as inanimate, are also thought to possess spirit forms and associated subjective powers. Here we rejoin the basic notion behind animism, uh, common to the animism common to most, if not all, 
indigenous peoples of the Amazon. Kayapal animism is grounded in the idea that animals and other natural beings, animate and even in some cases inanimate, possess spirit forms similar in nature, though different in specific functions and content and powers uh, from those of humans. These spirit forms consist of schemas of transformational processes oriented toward basic purposes like growth, reproduction, self-defense, and subsistence. Animism as a general idea of the mental or spiritual life of animals and perhaps other beings, in other words, is based on the extension of the assumption that this spiritual property of form is shared to some extent by all animate and some inanimate beings. The energies and powers inherent in these processes comprise a generic notion of power possessed in varying measure by all beings, a sort of generalized demiurgic force, analogous in some respects to merit's recension of Padrington's mana, but different from it in that it is conceived as intentionally oriented in terms of the life processes of the creatures, plants, or other beings that contain and employ it. This is perhaps the moment to consider the implications of Kayapo's views of these matters for some of the anthropological issues associated with the notion of animism. Humans, animals, and cultural knowledge. There's a long tradition in social anthropology of debate over the question of whether a culture's conception of the world is a projection of individual humans' personal experience or the structure of their own social system, on the one hand, or whether, on the contrary, their knowledge of the external non-human world is taken as the model of their conception of their human society and themselves. The latest manifestation of this issue has been the revival of interest in animism and the development of what has been called perspectivism, uh, primarily in France and Brazil. According to some contemporary anthropological writings, uh, animism is a form of knowledge, <coughs> excuse me, of knowledge or a set of ideas about the world based on projecting conceptions of human social relations or cultural traits in, onto animals and their supposed consciousness of themselves. Perspectivists have uh, attributed the idea that the animals themselves are the agents responsible for this. That is, the, the animals see themselves as humans under the skin, as it were. Or perhaps the point is rather that human members of indigenous Amazonian, Amazonian cultures think animals think of themselves in this way. Whatever, as I've argued at length elsewhere, uh, the Kayapos certainly, certainly do not think animals think of themselves in this way. And the evidence that other Amazonian peoples hold this opinion seems to me to be thin to non-existent. But this is not the place to go further into these issues. Uh, uh, I have done that in other places. Uh, I have elsewhere given reasons for considering these ideas to be based on erroneous interpretations of indigenous myths and cultural forms, specifically including Kayapo myths. Here I want to return to the question of the nature of Kayapo and other indigenous Amazonian perspectives on the world, specifically the relation of humans to animals and other natural entities on the basis of the Kayapo ideas I have discussed. I have suggested that the Kayapo do have a kind of animism which identifies common features of human subjective identity and bodiliness, 
and those of animal and other natural beings. But this commonality consists only of a partial overlap, as in a Venn diagram, between humanity and non-human beings. And the overlap is different for different species of animals and other natural entities. Partial overlap does not mean identity. On the contrary, I have argued that the Kayapoa developed a quite sophisticated notion of the essential differences between themselves as humans and animals, which is to say, reflexively, a sophisticated idea about the nature of specifically human consciousness, social practices, and perspective on the world. The essence of this conception is that humans alone apply transformational operations and procedures to themselves and thus become able to transform the transformations. In concrete terms, they use fire to make fire. Animals do not do this. At the same time, I wish to emphasize the specific features and power of the contents of the common overlapping area in the central zone of overlap in the Venn diagram, which comprises the Kayapo conception of the shared features of consciousness and existence uh, between humans and other beings. The fundamental role uh, and these features include the fundamental role of transformational processes such as growth, death, uh, many other things, cooking, I should mention, uh, and preparing food. As the principal, uh, that is, transformational processes like that as the principal constituents of cultural consciousness and the centrality of the dialectical interplay of form as an active agency or spirit and content as substance, energy, strength, and sensory capacity in the construction of these transformation, transformational processes. That these generic features are shared by all beings does not imply to the Kaipo that they originally developed in one species, such as humanity, and were projected onto others in what Marxists might describe as an alienated or a fetishized mistaking of human subjective perspectives for natural features. Rather, they comprise a generalized form of understanding of features and processes common to all species, or perhaps better in this context, to again refer to merit, pre-animist dispositions, which serve as the foundation of more specific ideas about the spirits and animating forms of different human and animal species. That is, more specifically, animist ideas about the spirit forms of humans and other beings. Distinction, tension, and beauty in Kayapo's social life. The relation of these ideas to Kayapo's ideas about, uh, about to Kayapo ideas about beauty and aging, however, needs to be understood in the context of a closer examination of Kayapo's social relations, more particularly the relations of production of beauty as a social value. The Kayapo, like, like other Northern Shea peoples, live in large villages consisting of numerous extended family households built around the periphery of a large open central plaza. These domestic households conform to a standard pattern of post-marital residence. Men are expected to move into the households of the women they marry. Women, in contrast, reside for their whole lives in the households of their mothers and fathers into which they were born. Their husbands must thus take up residence in the households of their mothers and fathers-in-law upon the consummation of their marriages, which for the Kayapo means of pregnancy and birth. 
This pattern of residence is common to all the Jay-speaking peoples, of whom the Kayapo are one, as to a number of other Amazonian societies. The Kayapo version of the common pattern, however, is unusual for its extreme emphasis on the displacement of men from their natal households and corresponding stress on their integration into their wives' households as husbands, fathers, and sons-in-law. This promotes the subordination of in-marrying sons-in-law to their wife's parents, which is expressed in prescribed forms of respect, obedience, and deference of the son-in-law to his parents-in-law. This leads to an extended period of probation and self-suppression on the part of the son-in-law as he gradually becomes integrated as a kinsman by marriage. That's a Kayapo expression uh, for what happens to a son-in-law in this case, uh, in the Kayapo expression, into his affinal household. This process is replicated in the relations between the age subset of young fathers and the senior male age subset of fathers of many children. I call them subsets because there is an overall father's age set, which consists of all adult men, adult men being defined as married fathers, resident with their wives and their final households. Here, too, the young men are collectively subordinated, that is, here at the men's house. The young men, in their collective age set uh, uh, rule, are collective, collectively subordinated to and must show deference toward the senior men. Senior men, by contrast, are free to express themselves in political discussions and debate. They cultivate the art of oratory and play prominent parts in communal ceremonies as sources of knowledge about details of ritual performance. They dance and sing and do anything they want to, basically. And women of the same age are similarly uh, uh, held harmless, so to speak, from any obligations of deference or even common uh, human kindness to their sons-in-law. Uh, uh, <coughs> um, the asymmetrical pattern of power in male household relations is both generated and embodied by the Kayapo age set system and its institutional hub, the men's house, which acts as the focus of the activities of both the men's and women's age set systems. It is located in the center of the circular village plaza. The word for the men's house, nga, means center. The plaza and the men's house are the setting of the main activities of the age sets, which constitute the ceremonial and political life of the village. The men's house is the dormitory of the youngest age set of boys who are removed from their maternal house and houses at about eight years of age, and henceforth make the men's house their domicile until they marry. They and their age mates remain residents of the men's house through their initiation as bachelors and later adolescents until they consummate their courtships of girls by getting one pregnant, which the Kayapo regard as the consummation of marriage and the, uh, the occasion for their affines to take them into the house. Uh, they don't need shotguns, they have war clubs. <laughs> the young men's achievement of fatherhood is the essential precondition for his removal from the men's house and his assumption of residence as a husband father in the house of his wife and wife's parents. This completes the cycle which begins with his removal from his natal household 
to the men's house under the sponsorship of a figure called a substitute for false father, uh, an unrelated man who assumes the role of paternal sponsor of the boy for purposes of men's house activities until he's ready to move into his wife's household as a father in his own right. The virtual severance of a boy's relations to his natal family is counterbalanced by the establishment of close relations between him and the ex-members of his father's and mother's natal families, his or her grandparents, paternal aunts and maternal uncles, through their bestowal of names and ritual valuables on him. The requirement that these <coughs> excuse me, constituents must come in the form of a sharing of names and valuables with one or more of these purely social relations, suppose, uh, rather than his or her father, mother or father, uh, begin, means that his social identity becomes tantamount to his identification with them. In the perspective of the developmental cycle of the family, then, the Kayapo pattern of bestowing and receiving names implies the identification of the endpoints of the dispersion of a family, its children's children, with its point of origin, the parents and siblings of Ego's parents, thus transcending and reuniting the breaches opened in the original natal families of Ego's parents by forging a link of name-giving and social identification over his parents' heads, as it were, between their parents and their parents, the parents' parents, in other words, and siblings' parents and siblings, grandparents and uncles and aunts, and uh, their children, that is, the, the linking parents' children, ego. We have seen that the Kayapo system of recruitment to age sets and the development of the men's house with its conversion of the resident male age sets into corporate associations for collective political and ritual activities exacerbates the intensity of the dispersion of elementary families and household attachments with the end result of reinforcing the social and political hegemony of men of the senior age subset of fathers of many children, both in the affinal household and the men's house. The same is true uh, of women uh, who exercise uh, considerable power and, and control over their sons-in-law at home, but do not have a parallel public role. They're not members of the men's house, which continues to be a club a meeting place for men after their formal removal to their wives' households. <coughs> the older men who exercise this dominance and control, this hegemony, are expected to exemplify in their public persona and activities the value of beauty, an expectation also extended to women the corresponding female base. The severity of the dispersion of family and household attachments and the powerful emphasis on relations of subordination and dominance in men's affinal households and the men's house give rise to social tensions which have periodically resulted, at least erupted, in the fission of Kayapo communities. The struggles leading to these secessions and divisions of villages have usually been led by men of the young fathers subset, age subset. These chronic tensions have led to the development of a unique Kayapo institution of beautiful naming ceremony and the associated development of a distinct category of 
names, called great or beautiful names, that can only be given in very elaborate and prolonged ceremonies, which have become the principal activities of the age sets and societies associated with a men's house. This, in effect, turns the institutional causes of the major physic tensions of Cairo society, the age sets and men's house, into the instruments of resolving or transcending those tensions through these naming ceremonies, collective naming ceremonies. It does this by diverting the source of the fissive tensions into a communal process of assuaging them by means of a hypertrophic elaboration of the basic pattern of circulation of names, valuables, and personal identities. This, is a, this name giving is always done uh, for all, all children uh, by uh, grandparents, uncles, and aunts, and so on. But in the case of Kakrit children, Kakrit families, common families, uh, there's no ceremony involved. They just give the name. Uh, it's only in these great naming ceremonies that the name giving becomes a public effort, commanding uh, uh, the participation of the entire society. And that, of course, is why uh, they are supposed, supposed to have, uh, to be sources of uh, the value of beauty attached to these names. The Kaipo system of names and ritual value, the valuables, however, results in the division of the whole society into two great status groups of unequal social value. Only about half of all persons in any village receive great or beautiful names and ceremonies. The proportion varies but never approaches 100%. This is because to sponsor naming ceremonies requires large amounts of labor many resources and the aid of many relatives or friends for the daily supply and preparation of food and other refreshment for the ceremonial uh, performance, as well as the support of the father of the name-receiving child who must lead the hunting of game and tortoises to be slaughtered for the climactic feast of the ceremony and needs for this purpose the aid of a number of volunteers, male volunteers in this case. Many families lack the resources and kin and connections necessary to undertake the sponsorship of communal naming rituals. Those who receive a beautiful name or names collectively make up the status category of beautiful people, MH. Members of the beautiful category share two important attributes overtly that the names that define their honorific status must have been given at the end of a major public ritual effort. On the, part, on the part of the entire social community, and tacitly, that they must have come from well-off parents and a relatively numerous kindred who have sponsored and collaborated in the production of the required ceremony. The beauty in question formally derives from the size and communal status of the group involved in making possible the bestowal of the tokens of beautiful status. Tacitly, uh, uh, and it is not said in so many terms, uh, it also, of course, derives, as I've said, from the size and uh, uh, resources and communal standing of the group of kin uh, of the name-receiving child's parents. The Kayapo system thus gives rise to the division of the entire society, including men and women alike, into unequal status groups, roughly equal in size. The category of common people for whom communal naming ceremonies are not held and who receive relatively few 
ritual valuables from their grandparents, uncles, and aunts, and a category of beautiful people who possess names and ritual valuables imbued with the prestigious value of beauty, mateness. Uh, the bisection of Kaipo society by the status distinction between beautiful and common people does not result in the formation of corporate caste or descent groups. There is no descent involved in this at all. But the chiefly office may be filled by a common man as well as by a beautiful one. And a chief of common origin may be counted as, or at least aspire to, consideration as among the beautiful elite of the community. Um, the, 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 the high status of beautiful of mage people uh, derives then neither from descent or kinship directly uh, or uh, uh, from uh, overt different differences in, uh, in ownership of any resources. It, it is a, a direct reflection of the involvement of the whole community in their honorific naming and tacitly uh, the ability of the, their parents to mobilize support, whether or not they have the resources, but then it usually uh, depends on them having the resources to do so. Uh, the social connotation of this distinction is that the members of the beautiful status group must have come from families well established in the community with relatively extensive kinship networks and social influence to assist them in the labor and resources necessary to sponsor I, to sponsor um, one of the great naming ceremonies, while common people include in their number the majority of those who lack kin, friends, and political influence in the community. The distinction is redolent with potential for social resentment and presents, represents, in effect, a resurfacing and transformed guise of the inequality, subordination, and dominance. The ceremonies are directed at transcending, however, indirectly. The result is an ironic dystopia produced by a communal effort to attain its opposite. The transcendence or neutralization of tensions arising from inequalities stemming from the reproduction of relations of dominance of senior men and women over juniors is effected or intended to be effected uh, by converting the institutional structure developed to produce that dominance and the resulting prolonged subordination of juniors into a procedure for counteracting the collateral effects, the tensions generated by that structure, namely the intensified disruption of elementary family relations and the resulting tensions that arise from it carried over into the subordination of men in their final families and the tensions that derive from that. This, this solution, however, as I've uh, argued, creates a new form of inequality in the social distribution of the value of beauty, which gives rise to new tensions and dissatisfactions. Beauty in different forms, the reinforced hegemony and social perfection of senior adults, or the enhanced honorific name identities of junior children, remains an ambivalent value fraught with potential for social disruption. The descent into beauty's opposites the chronic tendency for communal fishing. Conclusions. In many visits to Kayapo communities over 50 years, I have personally encountered only three cases of Ibon trans behavior, counting my tussle with Kran in 1965. One of the others was a woman. The other was a man, a chief of his village. Neither was aggressive, 
but both went into, a, into trances in which they lost the ability to speak and eventually latched into a coma. Uh, both did this repeatedly. Uh, they, they had a vocation for doing this, it seemed. Neither was a beautiful person by conventional Kayapo standards, that is, possessed of beautiful names bestowed in ceremony. On the basis of such ethnographic experience, I've come to realize that what my young comrade in the struggle with Kranitoich implied about beautiful people in general, you know, their proneness to going into Ivan trends, is not literally true. I have, however, come to recognize that his canard against the elite members of his society was ethnographically accurate in a different but very important sense as an expression of a relatively common attitude of persons relegated to concrete common status toward the social and cultural hegemony of the beautiful elite of their communities. A mixture of skepticism and resentment, not usually acute or aggressive, that nevertheless contributes uh, uh, to the discontent, the the dissatisfaction, particularly of young persons excluded from leading roles and access to valued attrib attributes of identity by their concrete status. This attitude is partly responsible for the relatively high rate of fishing of Kayapo communities. When I first arrived in 1962, there were seven Kayapo villages. Now there are 24. And the number is increasing by the year, now that the Brazilians have put an end to the inter-village hostilities that used to follow episodes of community fishing. It's easier to split up villages now, and you don't pay uh, in terms of uh, rating uh, by the people you split off from. Uh, <coughs> uh, let's see. The tensions aroused by the unequal distribution of beautiful status first revealed to me by my frightening encounter with Crown Toitch in 1965 have played a part in the historical <coughs> pattern of community fragmentation. The chronic disruption of beautiful villages has an effect, oh, as an effect of the pursuit of beauty, dominance, and free self-expression by aging men and women. Thank you.